Wyoming Nursing Education Office of the Center for Learning and Professional Development. I'd like to thank you for joining us for our September session of Nursing Grand Rounds entitled Nursing Care for People and the Planet. I'd also like to welcome anyone that's viewing this session online. Uh, just a few housekeeping remarks. Please be sure to sign in. You must attend 80% of the program to receive credit, and this educational activity carries one contact hour. For those viewing online, I'll be monitoring my email during this session, so please feel free to email me if you have any questions, and I'll relay them to the presenter. And also, within an hour after the program, please email me with your name, credentials, and your postal zip code so I can record your attendance. My email address is judith.m as in May, Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S at hitchcock.org. Everyone attending today will receive a link to an online evaluation by the end of the day. Even if you don't need the credit, please sign in so you can complete the evaluation. The CNE office values your feedback regarding this program and hopes you take a moment to complete the evaluation. There are, there are instructions on how to access your online transcript next to the sign-in sheet, or if you have any questions, you can contact me. None of our speakers or members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. And finally, the learning objectives for today's presentation are included in the slides. Our presenter today is Jessica Wolf. Jessica is currently the Environmental Sustainability Advisor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health, an academic health system serving patients across um, New England. She works with operational leaders and external partners to develop and drive the system's environmental sustainability program across six domains, uh, better building, leaner energy and water, healthier food, smarter purchasing, cleaner transportation, and less waste, recognizing the fundamental fundamental connection between environmental and human health, Jessica is working to reduce the organization's environmental footprint to support the health of DHH's patients, staff, and communities now and for generations to come. She has a degree in environmental studies from Oberlin College, a master's in nursing from University of Pennsylvania, and an MBA from the Eisenberg School of Management at UMass Amherst. As an environmentalist, business professional, and former clinician, Jessica feels privileged to be working to improve the health of people and the planet. Welcome, Jennifer. Okay. So this is on. Can everyone here hear me? Great. Does this, this doesn't make noise here, it just records? Um, no, it should be in the Okay. Everyone can hear me okay? Mm -hmm. Great. Very happy to be here. Very happy to be presenting at Nursing Grand Rounds. And the title of my presentation today is Nursing Care for People and the Planet. These are the learning objectives for today, since everyone is getting some credit here. Um, to be able to describe the impact of hospital operations on environmental quality and the ensuing effects on human health. To discuss ways in which nurses can help reduce the environmental impact of Dartmouth-Hitchcock's operations. And to identify specific methods for preventing waste, conserving energy, safely restocking or donating supplies, and recycling. Um, I was also asked to find a journal article to support this work. This is an older article it's from 2007 from the online journal of issues in nursing, but it's a really nice 
overview article of the different areas that we work in as can work in as nurses in environmental sustainability. Um, I'm going to ask Judy to send a PDF of this presentation to you afterwards. You'll see as we go through, I have a lot of links and a lot of information that you can follow up on. So I want to start kind of big picture overview. Humans impact the environment. We all know that. The way and the rate at which we've started to impact the environment dramatically changed in the Industrial Revolution back in the 18th and 19th centuries. The uh, invention of the internal combustion engine um, in the late 19th century and electrical generation further accelerated the rate of industrialization. And that kind of changed everything. It changed the way we did agriculture, it changed the way we did mining, it changed the way we transported things. And today, humans have impacted 80% of the Earth's surface. And not all of that impact has been good. So if we look at some of the things that we've been doing to the Earth and then some of the impacts, we've polluted our water, we've polluted our air, we've polluted our soil. We've caused major species extinctions. So right now they think the rate of species extinctions is, the estimates are really broad, but 1,000 to 10,000 times the natural rate of extinction. And that natural extinction rate is based on what we would expect if humans weren't here. So that is pretty dramatic. Climate change. Um, our atmosphere is, has now over 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide. I don't know if you guys saw the news this week, but September 2016 is now going to be a milestone in climate. Normally in September, we see lower rates of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because of all the summer plant growth in North America, those plants are absorbing the carbon dioxide all spring and summer. Well, we didn't see that drop in September. We're still over 400 parts per million. And the latest predictions is that we, we will never be under 400 parts per million again. And that has some pretty significant implications um, for where we're going in terms of our climate and uh, human health. So, there is a growing body of evidence that environmental quality impacts human health. Impurities in the air we breathe and the water we drink, chemicals in our manufactured products that make up their way into our bodies, and the inputs and outputs of our industrialized agricultural system all contribute to diseases. Diseases from respiratory disorders to cancers to endocrine disorders. The World Health Organization estimates that 24% of adult disease burden globally is due to environmental factors. And today, air pollution from the combustion of fossil fuels is killing more people than AIDS and malaria combined. This is a serious health problem. This is a slide about the impacts of climate change on human health. And climate change is really the greatest public health challenge of the 21st century. And this is a wonderful slide by the Centers for Disease Control. And in the center, what you see are the main impacts of climate change, rising temperatures, extreme weather events, rising sea levels, and increasing carbon dioxide levels. In the next circle out, you can see um, what, those, what, those, what those will cause in terms of new exposures that we as humans will have to uh, manage. So severe weather, air pollution, extreme heat, increasing allergies, changes in disease vectors. And in this outer ring, we see this complex impact on human health. So we're going to see asthma and cardiovascular disease increase from air pollution. 
we're and, and extreme heat. We're going to see increasing allergies, asthma. In, in the developing world, we're going to see a lot of malnutrition and diarrheal disease due to impacts on food and water supply. And we're already actually seeing climate impacts in New Hampshire. So the University of New Hampshire has a sustainability institute, and they recently put a report out, and it shows we're already experiencing some of this right here in New Hampshire. So we're seeing increases in severity and incidence of asthma and allergies. We're seeing an increase in tick-borne illnesses that were never here before. And what this um, diagram on your left shows you is depending on how many emissions we continue to put into the atmosphere, how the climate of New Hampshire is going to change. So under the best scenarios, these lower emission scenarios, by mid-century, we're living in the mid-Atlantic. So that's, that's a big change. So we see climate changes happening. We see other environmental issues that are causing disease, causing problems. And when people get sick, they seek health care. And we all do our best to treat these patients. But ironically, at the same time we're taking care of these patients, the way hospitals are operating today leads to environmental degradation, which is contributing to the very same diseases for which we're treating our patients. And, and how are hospitals doing that? Well, we're consuming a tremendous amount of energy. We're 24-7 high-tech facilities. Hospitals use two and a half times the energy per square foot as commercial enterprises. U.S. hospitals are responsible for 8% of this country's greenhouse gas emissions. So we're contributing to climate change, and then we're making people sick. Waste. So hospitals, U.S. hospitals overall, they generate 5.9 million tons of waste a year. And you all are real familiar with that waste because you're putting it in different buckets every day. Some of that is not pretty. Some of that, those pharmaceuticals, you would like not to be in your drinking water. We use a lot of chemicals here, and a lot of the products we have have a lot of chemicals. And we serve a lot of food, so where we get that food matters, and what that food is matters. And these pictures really, just to say, you know, here's energy at the top. In the middle, that's your supply room. Those are the supplies that create the waste. Um, and here are these chemicals in labs. You know, we're using a lot of serious chemicals here in healthcare. So when you understand this, when you understand the connections between environmental quality, hospital operations, and human health, you then say, you know, the underlying premise of medicine is to do no harm. If you believe that underlying premise of medicine is to do no harm, we have a responsibility to eliminate practices that harm people in the environment. And I want to show you a video. This is a newly released video from Healthcare Without Harm. And Healthcare Without Harm was really the first advocacy group in this space. In the early 1990s, they said, hmm, dioxin is killing people. Where's this dioxin coming from? Well, where it's coming from was the tens of thousands of medical waste incinerators. So that's how they started. And now they do a lot of advocacy work on issues across the spectrum on environmental sustainability. And I think this video does an amazing job of kind of all the points I just made, really transmitting it in a, in a really nice, powerful way. So it's about four minutes.
Since the times of Hippocrates, medicine has evolved in unimaginable ways. Inside our clinics, we've become brilliant at treating our patients' symptoms. But outside our walls, some of these illnesses are growing to epidemic proportions. Of course, we ask ourselves, what is making people sick in the first place? And why do they keep coming back? In our journey to diagnose and treat the body, we've been to the moon and back many times over. Masters and explorers of the very small. But 20 years ago, some of us saw that to understand the problem, we had to take a wider view. From that vantage point, we saw thermometers, each containing enough mercury to poison an entire lake, piled up in our trash. From an even wider lens, we saw medical waste incinerators on our own properties throwing toxic fumes skyward. Dioxins and mercury from waste incineration fell to earth, entering the water we drink and the fish and animals we eat, poisoning our bodies and the developing brains of our children. Our own fingerprints were all over the scene. We were contributing to making our own patients sick, all in direct violation of the oath we had sworn to do no harm. So we formed a coalition of doctors, nurses, and advocates to push back and push healthcare to stand with our oath and clean up our own house. Today, only a handful of incinerators exist in the U.S., and mercury thermometers are going the way of the horse and buggy all around the world. But why do you listen to me? The climate is changing, and the people we serve face perhaps the biggest harm of all. Now, we need healthcare to be a leader within this widest scope. Look at healthcare's global footprint. We consume huge amounts of energy on every continent, contributing to climate change and air pollution that kills 7 million people a year. In the U.S. alone, healthcare is responsible for 8% of greenhouse gas emissions. But here's our leverage. We are 18% of the U.S. economy and 10% of the entire global economy. The changes we make really can move entire industries away from harm and set new norms that will positively impact our patients' health. Imagine, for instance, healthcare fought antibiotic resistance by purchasing only antibiotic-free meat. Or how innovative solutions to eliminating waste, like biodigestion, could help power hospitals and reduce air pollution around the world. Healthcare could help make renewable energy viable by choosing to turn away from fossil fuels would reduce the carbon emissions that harm our patients and our planet. We stand at a turning point in the course of medical history, and we can move to a tipping point. It's within our power and our mission. Dr. Martin Luther King said the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Join us as healthcare bends toward a more just and sustainable future, rooted in our original oath, do no harm. So I think that's a pretty powerful message. Um, and this concept of doing no harm and the idea of the environment impacting patients has really deep roots in nursing. So Florence Nightingale, who's credited with founding modern nursing, she back then was always saying the very first requirement in a hospital is that it should do the sick no harm. And she was very aware, even back then in the mid-1800s, of the impact of air quality on patients. So she wrote about ventilation rates. She wrote about daylighting. When I was preparing for this talk, I found a journal, um, an engineering journal that had an article about her that said she wasn't just a nurse, she was a building engineer. She was the first person to really talk about indoor air quality in hospitals. 
And in fact, in this article, they said the ventilation rates she recommended back in the mid-1800s are similar to the recommendations and the guidance that we use today. So that's pretty incredible. And you know, when you think about Florence Nightingale, she was worrying about the patients, but we also need to worry about ourselves. We need to worry about the nurses, because nurses are disproportionately impacted by environmental insults in healthcare, because of the time you spend in the hospital and the role you play in taking care of patients. So this is some interesting information. Nurses develop occupational asthma at a rate double people in other occupations. And they did a survey um, of over 1,500 nurses and found that 52% of nurses had regular exposure to at least six hazardous agents in their workplace for five years or more. These are the kinds of insults that lead to diseases. So as nurses, we want to kind of clean up our house for our patients and for ourselves. So how can nurses make a difference? Well, nurses are really in a unique role. You're frontline workers in a hospital, but you're also trusted caregivers for patients and their families. So you can make a difference both in the hospital and outside the four walls of this facility. So on your units, you can, um, you can uh, identify opportunities to reduce energy, to reduce waste. You can look at products and see, is there a safer alternative? Is there a different chemical, a safer, greener chemical we could be using? You can educate your patients and your families about the concerns about environment and health and help them make better choices for themselves at home. And you can also be an advocate around some of this work, both in your communities and for your communities. I want to give you a sense of what's happening here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock so you can see how work in nursing can kind of fit in where, with how we've established environmental sustainability here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So one of the core strategies at Dartmouth-Hitchcock is to improve population health, and environmental sustainability fits very nicely into that pillar. When we reduce our environmental impact, we are going to improve the health of our communities. Dartmouth-Hitchcock has a long history of environmental leadership. This was one of the first hospitals in the 1990s to get rid of their medical waste incinerators. And Dartmouth-Hitchcock's been doing this work since then, so for decades, really. That work was being done across many different operational departments of this hospital by staff at all levels, directors, managers, frontline staff. And it was really coordinated for the last decade or so by my colleague, John Lee, who is here, who is now in, in the Office of Environmental Sustainability, but was sitting in a role as waste and recycling manager, but reaching out both nationally and throughout the hospital to get this work done. So in um, 2015, Dartmouth-Hitchcock decided to take this work to the next level. So they formed an Environmental Sustainability Council to oversee the Environmental Sustainability Program with representation from across the hospital and from the community. And they formed the Office of Environmental Sustainability, which is staffed with two of us, John Lee and myself. Um, and we started working. And we started to think about our work in seven different sustainability domains. So we have better building, leaner energy and water, healthier food, smarter purchasing, cleaner transportation, less waste, and greener culture. And that really was the foundation of how we started to think about the work we were doing here. And one of the first steps for the Environmental Sustainability Council 
was to develop a set of 2020 environmental sustainability goals. So we came out with, after many months of work and work groups and bringing in outside subject matter experts, internal stakeholders, we came up with a set of 35 goals that we put forward and they were endorsed by the Board of Trustees in December of 2015. So what this year has brought for us is starting on implementation, baselining some of those metrics and figuring out how we're gonna to get to these ambitious goals we set for 2020. And these goals and a lot of the things I'm telling you are available from our intranet site and that link is, um, or information is in here as well. So how have nurses been working at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in sustainability? So we have, um, see there's one of the stars in the front row and there she is in the picture, Christabel <laughs> Crown. So nurses have been doing most of their work from green teams uh, throughout the facility and we have green teams on a number of units at this point. And I'd like to give you just a few examples of what these green teams have been working on and then talk to you about a big, big project that we're gonna be rolling out across all units in the hospital. So one of the things all the green team units have worked on is source reduction. So Chris and the ICU green team, one of their recent uh, projects was replacing, they realized everything they did, the only scissors they had were sterile scissors in packs. So they're constantly opening sterile scissors. Oh, you need your band cut off? Let me go get some sterile scissors. So they realized they were wasting so much packaging and processing. So instead, they've gotten reusable bandage scissors that are located on carts, easy to find, but a place to replace them so that they don't have to go through these packs of sterilized scissors. Uh, CBCC and 4West have labeled their supply rooms. So if you go into their supply rooms, you can see the cost of many of their supplies, and you can see if the packaging is recyclable on those supplies or if the supply itself is recyclable. Just good reminders every time you go to grab something. Um, radiology, they are Interventional radiology is now trialing something that mammography has done for a long time. They're using reusable baskets for their patients. So instead of people putting clothes in a disposable bag that we're going to throw out, they're going to have a basket that they're putting their clothes in. Um, and interventional radiology recently switched to a reprocessed saphenous vein catheter, saving the hospital significant money, but also uh, you know, reducing the, the source of the waste. Uh, greening the OR has been working, that team's been working really hard, a lot of energy reduction initiatives, setting back air exchange rates in ORs, and most of these green teams, all of these green teams are working on recycling. Do we have the right bins? How are we doing separating? What goes where? Those are questions we're going to always have. And then opportunities for energy. Are there places for motion sensors? Are there placing places for LED lighting retrofits, dimmer lights? Are there, are there machines? Are you keeping seven machines on all weekend when you really need one on? So units have a lot of opportunities when, when you're really working with the right people. And I can't come in and tell you what to do in your unit. It's the people there that really understand what's happening and what they can do to make a difference. So you can learn a lot more about this area um, we have an intranet site that you can get to under environmental sustainability, lots of links in there. And I just wanted to call attention to three other links, the Healthier Hospitals Initiative, Practice Green Health, and Practice Green Health is really the organization that is supporting hospitals nationally to adopt sustainability practices, and there's just tons of information out there. And then Healthcare Without Harm, what we talked about. The other thing our nurses are doing is they're getting involved nationally. So there's a national conference called Clean Med. Um, 
and Rachel Dallaire, who's here in the back, is president of our professional nursing organization, uh, joined us at CleanMed, as well as two of our OR nurses, Linda Thompson and Pat Stockwell. And you know, we're able to learn a lot and bring things back to us and also bring things out to the national community that we're doing here, because we're doing really important work here. Um, there was also a green in the OR symposium that a couple of our nurses attended. Another way to get involved is a great organization called the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments. So again, I'm gonna send this, uh, this out in a PDF. There's different groups that you can get involved in if you're interested in education, if you're interested in practice, if you're interested in affecting research or policy and advocacy. The overall goal of the Alliance for Nurses, of Nurses for the Healthy Environment is to promote healthy people and healthy environments across the spectrum of what nursing does. So I did talk to the director of programs, Katie Huffling, before this talk, and I did promise her that she's gonna get a lot of new members after this. <laughs> um, so now I wanna talk about this really exciting initiative that we're, that we're working on with waste management and um, infection prevention. And it's our medical supply waste reduction project. So this is a project that is really important. And why is it important? You saw that in the earlier stats, you may or may not remember, that on average, hospitals are creating 31 pounds of waste per staff bed per day. Well, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, it's much higher. It's 42 pounds. Now, that's partly because we're an academic medical center, so we have a lot of spaces that are, you know, are generating a lot of waste that don't have patient beds. We have, what, around 400 beds. So this is a little bit of a skewed statistic, but we're creating a lot of waste here in this facility. We created almost 3,000 tons of waste in 2015. We also donated a lot. We donated 18 tons of equipment and supplies to a medical surplus recovery organization last year. And it's great that we're donating and we're helping people in need, but many of the things we're donating should never have been taken out of the supply room. And if they were, many of these items should have been restocked. So especially in this very <laughs> fiscal environment, that becomes even more important. So when we make supplies, we're leading to environmental degradation, and we're losing money. That could be used for other things. So what I want to do with you now, so this, what this project is, our goal is to reduce supply waste. And the way we're doing it is this team of departments is training nurses on units who are then going to be, we're training trainers. So those nurses are then going to train all the staff on their units in ways they can help reduce medical supply waste. So what I'm gonna run through with you is actually slides from our train the trainer uh, presentation. So this is the waste pyramid. And we always say reduce, reuse, recycle. And here's the waste pyramid. Well, why is reduction at the top? Reduction's at the top because it's the best thing we can do for the environment and ultimately for our health. When you use fewer products, when you use products with less material or less packaging, you're preventing the upstream impact, very substantial impacts, from the extraction of the raw materials, from the manufacturing of the products, and the transportation of those products. So we always want to start up here with reduction. So how do you think about that when you're going about your daily work? Well, the first thing you should say is, are the supplies already in the room? So you know, is there, every unit is set up differently, every unit's rooms are different, but is there a designated place where everyone's putting supplies so you could like go and peek in and say, oh, okay, there's 10 rolls of tape in there, I guess I don't have to bring another. You know, we all worry when we're working, you guys are busy, you're taking care of a lot of patients, 
you know, you want to just bring everything in because if you need something, you don't want to have to run out. You always worry. Everyone does the same thing. So these are things to start thinking about because there's implications for everyone bringing supplies into a room. And how many does the patient need? So one of the things, if you look in our medical supply donation bu uh, buckets, tons of chucks, right? Because you just grab the pack of five, you bring them in the room, you open them, and then what do you do? You can't restock those. They're clean and unused. They can be donated. But you know, maybe you could change that process on your unit that you could open that pack of chucks in the clean supply room and just grab two. Now, for some patients, you can't risk not having a big pack of chucks in there, and we understand that. But you should, that's one of the things you can think about. And what's interesting is this data, Five West did a great project. They audited 32 patient rooms. They logged every single thing that was left in that room. And then we looked at the cost of each of those products. And I just pulled a couple things out for you to show you some of the impact here. So just chucks. Um, you know, on average, is at least one chuck in every room. And if we just look at that cost over a year, it's over $600. And just these three products, you're looking at over $3,000 worth of cost. Another project we're going to be uh, rolling out as part of this overall medical waste supply uh, reduction project is this personal uh, care product checklist. So with or without the checklist, I think we all feel like, oh, we want patients to feel supported and welcome and that we care about them. So I'm going to get a pink bin. I'm going to put every personal care product I could find in this bin because I want to have a welcome basket for my patient. Like, I'm going to put in a toothbrush and, you know, four shampoos and two body lotions. Oh, they might like this. This is pretty. And so what happens to those supplies? You know, if it's a planned, um, if, if it's a planned hospital visit, they don't want your toothbrush. They're going to bring their own toothbrush. They don't want your shampoo. So we need to ask patients what they want and bring them what they want and what they need, not just stock rooms. And we are developing this um, personal care patient, personal care product checklist along with Carol Majewski and patient experience because we want to make sure that it doesn't have a negative impact, obviously, that people feel like they have to ask for what they want. But we're going to try this and see if it helps both reduce waste of supplies, and makes patients actually maybe feel more supported because they get to ask for what they want. So you may or may not know this. The reason we partnered with Infection Prevention on this is there is something called the reissue of supplies procedure. And I've been shocked about how few people know about this. So this is from Infection Prevention. So if you are, are cleaning up a room and that patient has never been on expanded precautions, you can restock a supply if it's unopened, hasn't come in contact with the patient, packaging is intact, and it's not visibly sold. If you look at what goes to our medical donation <laughs> bin, we have sealed bottles with plastic seals on the top of all sorts of products from patient rooms. Those should be restocked. If a patient is on expanded precautions, the rules are a little bit different. So when can you restock from an expanded precaution room? Some units have drawers and cabinets. If you're storing supplies in a closed cart, cabinet, or drawer, that supply can be restocked if it's not open, hasn't come in contact with the patient, packaging's intact, and it's not visibly soiled. So now we're going to have a little audience participation. Oh, no, let me do that first. You can't restock a supply in an expanded precautions room if it was stored in an open area. So I know, for instance, we've been working with 3 West, who is piloting the training for us. Um, and they don't have any closed 
cabinets at all in their rooms. So any expanded precautions applies for them will not be able to be restocked. So they're gonna have to be really mindful of what goes into that room. Okay, can these be restocked? Who wants to play? I'll take a hand. Can that item on the left, the shampoo and body wash, be restocked? All right, you're my contestant. What do you have to say? Has it been opened and used? She asked, has it been opened and used? And that's right, it's not so straightforward. Okay, no, it hasn't. If it hasn't been opened and the patient didn't have it, then I would restock it. Great. And what if, I, I know some of our bottles, you couldn't even tell if it had been opened, right? Some of them have a seal underneath, you'd have to check or, okay. So that gets a little more complicated. Um, and how about the gauze pads on the right? We can restock them. They're in sealed packaging. How about if they were out on the counter in a room with expanded precautions? No. How about if they were in a drawer in a room with expanded precautions? Yes. All right, oral swabs, everybody's favorite. You don't just grab two, you grab like 25 of them, right? Like big handfuls. So we find these everywhere too. Okay, who wants to play on this slide? Come on, all right, I got one, all right. So on the left, can those be restocked? Not, how about if there was no expanded precautions? Can I restock those? Why not? They are open. Those go in the garbage, people. Okay. <laughs> on the right, how about that one? It can be if it didn't come out of a precaution room and if it was in a drawer. But if they were out on the counter or something. In an expanded precaution room, if they were out of the counter, even if it's sealed, it can't be restocked. Right, good. All right, you guys, three gold stars, that was great. Oh, and the reissue supplies procedure is available on PolicyTech. And one of the things we're working on with this project, you may have seen it on your units already. We've printed it out kind of in, in big print and clear form and tried to put it up in supply rooms. So as we move down the waste pyramid, we get to reuse. And reuse would mean donation here. So what can be donated? We have a new medical donation organization we're working with called Project Cure. And we've also tried to go through the hospital and post in clean supply rooms, which I know are very crowded, and then we have discovered not a lot of wall space, what's acceptable to donate to Project Cure. And they're a wonderful organization. We're proud to be working with them. We'd like to give them less stuff, but we still want to give them stuff rather than put it in the garbage. <coughs> they cannot, unfortunately, take an open shampoo either. Number one, it might spill and transport and ruin other supplies. And just from a hygienic perspective, the guess is not to put in anything open. <coughs> and we're going to continue down the waste reduction pyramid work to recycling and composting. So this is currently what we're recycling here. So we're going to be, Zach Conaway, who's in the back, is our waste and recycling manager. And we are soon going to be rolling out <coughs> labeling across the health system to help make these clearer. But basically, we're going to have one bin for paper, which can have any white or colored office paper. All of this paper is shredded before it leaves the facility. This is where you put any paper with patient information. So all PHI goes in a paper-only bin. The other bin, which right now for most of you is labeled containers probably, is really our mixed recycling. So we're going to be collecting now, this is a picture of non-medical supplies. So, you know, if you have lunch in your unit, anything that is plastic that is bigger than two inches in two dimensions and relatively clean, just rinse out your food waste before you recycle 
your clamshell, dump out your coffee and rinse it before you put that Dunkin' Donuts cup into the recycling. You can also put magazines, newspapers, box, board, cans, all into that mixed recycling or what now is labeled for you as containers. Cardboard we're keeping separate. It's usually just stuck behind the recycling bins. This is a picture of many of the things that might be able to be in, put in containers or mixed recycling from the medical side. And many of you notice that your lids have small round holes on them. So you have to be very brave and you have to lift the lid if you have something that's bigger than fits in those holes. It's really okay to lift the lid. So you're gonna see here some examples of things that can be recycled in mixed recycling. So box boards, so glove boxes, gauze boxes, bo plastic, anything that's more than two inches in two directions. So little, um, that, you know, bottom of supply containers. So peel back that Tyvek or paper lid, throw it out, and then put the plastic into the plastic recycling. Uh, bedpans can be recycled only if they're clean, you know, and no one expects you to be scrubbing a bedpan. So if it's too soiled, you're gonna throw it out. The tissue boxes that are typically on units. The box board, yep. They're not two inches high. But that's box board. The two, two by, oh. at least two inches in two directions is only pertaining to plastics. So we don't want little plastics, and the reason why is they're going to end up in the landfill anyway. The machinery you see in material recycling facilities, that stuff just falls through and becomes residue that goes to the landfill. That's why you need a slightly bigger size for that plastic. So, so that's how, often you guys, how often are you guys going to come around to empty the, yeah, the, to empty what? To empty the recycling still. Are you having a problem with it not being empty? Some, yeah, there are sometimes. sometimes you so you should uh, reach out to Zach Conaway, our waste and recycling manager if you're having issues on your unit where you're not getting things picked up as frequently. I mean, we have a serious staffing problem in environmental services, a shortage, but we would, of course, always try to get there and pick up things when we can. The empty Purell containers. You know, we thought that we could recycle those Purell containers. We're now getting some information because there's so much, there's metal and other stuff in there. So we were giving some advice that we thought those could be recycled. We're learning now that it's, they're, they're not recyclable. I'm trying to find out more from Gojo, the company. The other thing you may or may not know, we were surprised to learn that units, nurses on units don't know this, is that we have been composting in our kitchen for, I don't know, 13 years. So when patient trays go back down to the kitchen, the food waste is collected and sent for composting. Other things are separated out for recycling. So you can make sure you leave things on patient trays. Those are going to get managed properly in the kitchen. And you can tell the patients and families the same thing, that if you leave stuff on patient trays instead of throwing it out in the garbage in the room, it will get recycled properly. Many inpatient rooms don't have recycling. Some of our green teams have set up inpatient room recycling. So that is it for me, and I'm going to save some time for uh, questions and we are at the Office of Environmental Sustainability, and you can feel free to either find us through our intranet page or um, emailing us directly. And I hope that um, this has been helpful and interesting and that you all want to learn more. So thank you very much. So the question was that um, I talked most about the inpatient unit and what kind of work are we doing in the clinic settings. And the answer is we're not getting really to the clinic settings so much. 
Um, when we look at kind of that Pareto principle that typically 20% is causing 80% of the impact, we're really seeing that impact in the inpatient settings in terms of energy use, waste generation, um, even more so true for the OR, which is why there's a lot of focus on the OR. Um, there is, I hope, recycling in the clinical clinic spaces. I know there is that. If groups in the clinic spaces wanted to look at opportunities for energy savings, you know, we are we're certainly there to support you. We haven't rolled out major initiatives in those in the clinics at this point. We also are looking to go do some assessments of our southern clinics as well. Uh, second question: um, If there are composting food in the kitchen, if for those of us who aren't eating in the dining hall. Is there a way for us to get our food to them for composting? Or yeah, that's hard. I mean, you could if you're on if you were on a unit, you could put it on a patient tray as it's going down, right? That's one way to do it. Um, you could come down and drop it off yourself and put it onto the belt with a tray, and they would compost it. But the problem we, we actually just over the summer um, worked to expand food waste collection to the food court restaurants. So Oban Penn, Sabaro, and Craven's uh, Deli are now all collecting their food waste for composting. So that was a pretty impressive uh, accomplishment and they've been great. And we're projecting that them composting their food waste will add 63 tons of food waste to our stream every year. So very significant. We would love, love to be able to have compost bins you know, in every lounge and in every conference room, but it's complicated. You know, you don't want bugs, no, you got an empty location, like if Oban Payne and Cravens and Sabaros are doing it, can we the post-consumer. Right. So right now it's all done where they're preparing their foods, but I think the next step may be post-consumer in the food court. Of course the problem, and you guys all know, you go up to a set of bins, you're in a rush, you just throw it wherever you want to throw it. So in order for us to use our food waste to be composted, we can't have a ton of contamination. And post-consumer, we're, we're very untrustworthy as people, you know? So <laughs> it's hard to get a clean stream from post-consumer, but I think it, that is the next thing we will look at as we kind of roll this out in phases. Where does the compost go? Where does it like, bring it to? Next question was, where does the compost go? Um, so our compost for many years went to a local farm, and that felt really like a great story. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, the woman who farmed, who owned that farm passed away last year. And our compost is now, our food waste is now being composted at the Lebanon landfill. So it's not going right in the landfill, the food waste is being composted. And that is a, when you compost, that is a process where the food waste is broken down aerobically with oxygen. That's a really important thing to remember because if food waste goes right in a landfill, it's broken down anaerobically and it produces methane, which is much more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So the landfill does a composting operation. Then they use that compost as cover. So every time you dump into a landfill, you've got to cover that garbage. If, we, if they weren't making their own compost there, they'd be bringing in topsoil that was pulled off the land in other places. So it is really an environmental benefit, I think, Part of me, of course, would like the story of the farm, but right now that that's where our compost is going. Yes? Are there issues with the paper recycling? Are there and issues? The, like the pails and, and everything else. Like, do you find when it comes down that there's trash inside with like, recycled paper? So the question was, are there issues with the paper recycling? I'm going to ask Zach Conway, our waste and recycling manager, to respond, and then I'll repeat his response into the microphone. So we do have some issues, 
not regularly. It's irregular, uh, but I will say that uh, we just got um, some info back as we've moved to uh, office paper uh, specifications where uh, we actually are meeting that specification for a sort of office paper. So we actually, in general, are doing very well. Um, I will say, though, that because we shred everything, the waste management team does go through uh, all of the paper. So if there is something that's considered contaminant, such as a newspaper, uh, box board, uh, magazine, they're pulling that out and it's getting put back into the correct stream. How much trash is in that paper percent? I think it's part of our I wouldn't say it's very much from a, from a trash standpoint. Um, okay. Usually it's mis misconceptions about what goes into the paper. Well, my, my, what I see in, within the organization, and I go to all the units pretty much, um, there's these many, and I find that there's many. They're blue, they're you know, different colors, and different colored paper goes here, blah, blah, blah goes there. Sometimes I just walk around looking for some place to put a piece of trash. Okay, and sometimes I see those bins with the paper in them, and they'll have gloves in it, they'll have coffee cups, they'll have everything. And I'm like, it's so easy. It seems like it would be like natural to have like one bin with a shredder on top that people know. And in the units, you could say to somebody, that goes right there, like at the front of the unit. There's a big pail, you put it in, it gets shredded immediately. It's like no looking for it afterwards nothing else will fit in there. That people can't just drop things in because it's, yep, so I, I don't know, it's, it's, I taught other people tell us in other hospitals they just have shredders and everything that goes in, you can't fit anything else in. So, so the conversation I, here for folks who are not here with us is about what goes in the paper bin and how do we make it easier for people yeah. to put only paper in that bin that other hospitals maybe have separate shredders on every unit. I mean, if you had a shredder in every unit, you're gonna have maintenance issues, you're gonna pay and be replacing those shredders all the time. So talking about source reduction, that would be yeah. a lot. That said, what you're bringing up is really about how bins are located, and we should always have a station that has paper, mixed recycling, and trash all together. You don't want a garbage in one place and recycling in another place. We need it all together so you know where to put things. Most paper bins should have a lid on them that has a, a slot, so you know that this is for paper, you know, not to put anything else in. So there are some kind of set things, you know, this is yeah. for paper. Um, and I think, you know, Zach, um, we, we were without a waste manager for a time period, and Zach started at the end of April, and I think we are really working on that, getting bins where they should be, labeled the way they should be, so it's really clear. I just want to go back and touch on the paper issue. It's one thing to have paper contaminated, the bigger issue is if you put paper with PHI, with patient health information, into a mixed recycling bin, because that's not going to get shredded. So we want people to really, that's what you really need to be aware of. That paper shouldn't go in with the mixed recycling. It needs to go in a paper-only bin. Go ahead. I have another question, because I see them being used a lot, is those blue plastic bed covers that when a bed is dirty, they take off that thing, that big roll of plastic stuff, and they put the cover over the bed, or they could be clean, I don't know which way they use them. That is not biodegradable. Those big plastic sheets, and we must go through hundreds of them during a, a, a shift.
left. And it's like, there must be something more biodegradable. Are those collected as they get thrown in the trash? So, so the question is about the contaminated, uh, the blue bed covers and the clear bed covers, right? Not just yeah. blue and clear. Well, yeah, I didn't even know they had clear because I always see people put the blue ones over it. And I'm like, so many of those do you use in a day? And they go to the landfill, right? So the, the, those beds are only covered when they're in the hallway and housekeeping hasn't gotten to it yet. If you, if you have a patient, environmental services hasn't cleared. If you have a patient that discharges, environmental services comes and cleans the bed. But if you have to put a different bed in that room and it's pulled out into the hall, they use those plastic blue covers to identify that it's a dirty bed in the hall right. until environmental services gets rid. So it's not hundreds a day, but there, oh, but probably significant. But um, they needed to use something to identify that. It used to be you put a paper towel on it. Right. So <laughs> <dirty bed. laughs> but there's, there's millions of examples. Of it's just a thought. Of I see that so, so that might be an opportunity. These, these plastic we use for bed covers. We do recycle film plastic that's that's in some units that's collected, stored, separated. We can't pick it out. We don't have the labor to pick it out, so it can't go in our mixed recycling. But units that generate a lot of film plastic, there are some places we're collecting it. We may have an opportunity that you identified that when EBS uncovers those beds, we could collect that as film plastic. I don't know if we're doing that now. So in, yeah, in the hallway by my office, uh, in the 211 tunnel at DH, um, we, where the bed park is, yeah. um, we do collect some of that film plastic there. So a bed, if, if someone comes down and grabs a clean bed that's been covered and, and been clean, that that clean cover will go into a bin that will be reused. And when it gets to a point where it's torn or it's uh, landed on the floor or something like that, it's then being put into another bin where it's being bagged and recycled with the rest of our, of our plastic. Um, I, I, can definitely uh, investigate a little bit further with the blue, um, the blue bed covers, but I'm pretty sure it's the same same thing. We're collecting those and we're recycling them. Okay. I was just curious. Other questions? A, a few uh, short ones, I think. Um, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. Um, one thing that I keep running into is when I need to use uh, put on sterile gloves to go into a patient's room, and I try to pull out just. <laughs> Often, many more, not, not many, but another one comes out and falls on the floor. Clean, 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 clean oh, Sorry, yeah. Clean. Okay, clean gloves. Yeah. Thank you. I'm a social worker, not a doctor. Okay. <laughs> um, so, is there any um, vendor that has different kinds of packaging that, that would make it easier to just get those that's a really two, interesting two uh, opportunity again a great thing for so nurses to take on and figure out is there a better product out there and you know how big a problem is it you know how many gloves are falling all over the floor do they need to teach you a better technique for getting gloves out you know who knows let's do some social workers how to get the gloves out you know Okay. Yes. Um, an another thing is um, in 
bathrooms, the, the single bathrooms on the units. Um, I, I work in care management. We have two single uh, bathrooms. The, the light switches are just regular light switches and often are being left on. So, so that, great opportunity for motion sensors. And those those kinds of motion sensors are cheap, the ones you put in bathrooms. So we can work with engineering. Again, if you're in an area and you think there's an opportunity, you can let us know. We can talk to engineering and say, hey, can you go check it out if that's a good place for a motion and, sensor. And even a reminder to everyone. They also have these, please turn off the light switches. Yeah, yeah. What, what I find is, and you can look at the data, like we all turn lights off at home, but we don't turn them off at work. And probably a number of reasons. Sometimes, at least for me, I'm in this big open cube space. I don't know if anyone's still there. I don't know if I'm allowed to turn the light off. You know, you leave a conference room. I mean, I just turn them off because I figure yes. that's an okay way to go. But I think many people don't feel comfortable or confident doing it. Um, and then we just forget to do it. So I think, you know, looking for motion sensors, changing the culture that, you know, if someone gets lights turned off on them, that's not the end of the world. They could say, hey, I'm still in here. <laughs> And then my last thing is in, um, when new employees or uh, uh, we've had a couple of travelers, uh, mm. social work travelers, who go, I assume they go through orientation. They do. Um, uh, is this all brought up? And the reason I say this is that I've been sharing an office with a lovely traveler. But what I noticed when she arrived is after she would have lunch and she'd have a drink in a plastic container, it would go in our trash bin, and literally right outside our office is a can recycling. So I mean, just some people don't have that awareness yep. and just to really So we're, we're very unusual nationally that um, environmental sustainability is part of general orientation. Um, John, many years ago, started presenting for 20 minutes at every general orientation. So people do get it, but they get it at a day that, you know, they've been, I don't know how long it's been since you've been at general orientation. You basically sit there from 7.30 till 3 and have people talk at you. So what you retain is what you retain. But part of that's going to be culture and for you to find a way to say really nicely to her, like, you know, hey, there's recycling right out in the hallway, and I'm sure you do. <laughs> So there was a question about um, where does the hospital, how does the hospital power, power ourselves and where does the energy come from? So the, the electricity grid in the Northeast is actually a greener grid than many places in the country. We don't really have coal on that grid. So um, even if you just bought power and didn't pay attention to is this green, you're getting some low hydro, you're getting nuclear, you're getting oil and gas, you're not getting coal, coal typically. So that helps our, our pro, um, profile. Um, we just actually did a big electricity purchase to our engineering department where we did, um, was it 10% John Green portfolio, I think? Yeah. So supporting, um, it's probably going to support wind in other parts of the country, but we are going to be sourcing renewable energy through a renewable energy credit. Um, the big thing they did here in energy was in 2014. Um, we used to burn number six fuel oil, which is the dirtiest fuel oil, and they transitioned to natural gas in 2014, and if you might have seen, depending where you are in the hospital, we have these compressed natural gas trucks that drive in. And that switch from number six fuel oil to natural gas decreased the fine particulate matter that we're producing by 96%, and that's one of the main causes of respiratory dis uh, disorders. So 
and it also reduced, of course, sulfur dioxide, um, nitrous oxide, and all and carbon dioxide. So, we would like, um, obviously, to expand the renewable energy portfolio here, and it is something that we're looking at. Um, many hospitals struggle with what to do on-site versus investing in large off-site um, installations. But it is something, you know, we are generally fossil fuel powered. The other, I think, good news is we actually are, we're building a new hospice building. And the primary, primary power source for the heating and air conditioning of that building will be geothermal. Yeah, so we're really proud and pleased about that. That was one of our 2020 goals was that all new buildings needed a non-fossil fuel source as the primary power source for the building. Are, so, there, any, are there any plans in the future to try and switch to, to try and, and kind of counteract the fossil fuel energy sources? Yep, so we have a goal to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions from um, the health system by 25% by 2020. So that's going to take a lot of energy efficiency initiatives using less energy, and it's going to also mean that we need to switch to renewable energy. So we are diligently pursuing those opportunities, and thank you for asking about that. All right, it's almost noon. Thank you guys so much for your attention. You're a wonderful audience. Thank you.